This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Episode 17 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Next Saturday, July 25th, will mark the first anniversary of the Trump administration's announcement that the United States was going to restart executing federal prisoners sitting on death row. This week, on Tuesday at 8.07 a.m. Eastern Time, it acted on that announcement when Daniel Lewis Lee became the first person in 17 years to be executed by the federal government. Two more executions were scheduled for this week. One was carried out yesterday. By the time you hear this, the third execution may already have taken place. At the beginning of this year, there were 2,620 inmates awaiting execution in the United States, 62 of whom were in federal custody. Texas so far this year has executed three death row inmates, including one on July 8th. Georgia, Alabama, Tennessee, and Missouri each have carried out one execution so far in 2020. The topic for this week, therefore, is the death penalty and what Jewish law has to say about it. You may think you know what it has to say, but keep listening. You may be surprised at what you hear. First, some background, and I need to warn you, some of this background material is pretty gruesome. It's necessary, though, if we're to understand the kind of crimes that can carry a death sentence. Last July 25th, Attorney General William Barr said the death sentence was reserved for, quote, the worst criminals, unquote. Worst criminals perfectly describes Daniel Lewis Lee and the four other men scheduled to be executed in 2020. Lee was a skinhead and a white supremacist who was part of a group seeking to found a community of like-minded racists and religious bigots in an eastern Oklahoma compound they unfortunately named Elohim City. In 1999, he was convicted of the robbery, torture, and triple murder three years earlier of an Arkansas firearms dealer named William Muller, his 28-year-old wife Nancy Ann Muller, and Nancy's 8-year-old daughter Sarah Elizabeth Powell. He and his accomplice then wrapped their victims' heads in plastic bags, weighted them down with rocks, and dumped their bodies in a local swamp. Lee didn't dispute having taken part in the torture and killing of Mr. and Mrs. Muller, for which he was sentenced to life imprisonment. But he vehemently denied, including in his last words, that he had anything to do with the death of eight-year-old Sarah Elizabeth. It was for her death that he was executed. Three other federal executions are scheduled for the summer, and a fourth is yet to have a new day set. All four were sentenced to death for killing children, as Lee was. At 8.19 a.m. yesterday, Thursday, Wesley Ira Perky was executed. Perky gratuitously confessed to transporting a 16-year-old girl from Kansas to his home in Missouri, of raping her there, stabbing her multiple times with a boning knife when he was done with her, and then stuffing her corpse into a toolbox. A few days later, he dismembered her body with a chainsaw and burned her remains in his fireplace. Whatever didn't burn up, he dumped into a nearby septic pond. As I said, Perky gratuitously confessed to this horrible crime. Police didn't even know the crime had been committed, much less that he was involved. Perky volunteered the information because of a miscalculation on his part. At the time of his confession, he was facing life imprisonment for bludgeoning to death an 80-year-old woman. He confessed to killing the girl because he thought he'd be better off spending the rest of his life in a federal penitentiary rather than in a Kansas state prison cell. He never thought he'd be put to death. Dustin Lee Honkin was convicted of killing five people, including two girls, aged 6 and 10, 
and then burying their bodies. Although he has publicly insisted on his innocence, Hankin allegedly confessed the crime to another inmate. His execution is scheduled for today, Friday, and it may already have occurred when you hear this. Then there's Keith Dwayne Nelson. He pled guilty to kidnapping and raping a 10-year-old girl and then strangling her to death using a wire. His execution is scheduled for August 28th. Awaiting execution at a date still to be set is Lesmond Charles Mitchell, who stabbed to death a 63-year-old grandmother and then slit the throat of her 9-year-old granddaughter before crushing the girl's head with 20-pound rocks. He then severed and buried the heads and hands of both victims. He was originally scheduled to be executed last December, but a thorny legal issue has gotten in the way. Mitchell and his two victims are all Navajo Indians, and the crime took place on Navajo land. So under federal law, jurisdiction in Mitchell's case may actually belong to the Navajo Nation. That question is under appeal, and his execution has been stayed until all avenues of appeal have been exhausted. All of these executions are being held at the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, where Lee was executed on Tuesday and Perky on Thursday. Anyone deserved to be put to death for their crimes. These five men certainly fit the bill. But should government at any level put anyone to death, no matter how heinous their crime? What's particularly disturbing about the administration's decision to resume executions is that these are the only scheduled executions at least through 2022. Just five out of 62 death row inmates, and four at least, are all conveniently lumped together. Three were originally scheduled for this week, only weeks before the Republican convention, and one is scheduled for the day after the convention ends on August 27th. The timing is curious, to say the least. It makes one wonder whether law and order politics in an election year was behind the decision to resume executions and not the horrendous nature of the crimes. In any case, here's a fact that's not in dispute. Not everyone sentenced to death in the past in this country was guilty of the crimes for which he or she was sentenced, and that include people who had confessed to their crimes under duress. According to a 2014 study authored by Professor Samuel Gross of the University of Michigan Law School and published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, for example, about one out of every 25 people sentenced to death is probably innocent, that's 4.1% of criminal defendants who are sentenced to death. As Professor Gross put it, quote, It is all but certain that several of the 1,320 defendants executed during the 15-year study period were innocent, unquote. Here's another statistic to consider. Since 1973, when states resumed executions, for every nine people who were executed in the United States, one person sentenced to death was eventually exonerated and released. That's somewhere around 170 people who were put on death row who didn't belong there because they were innocent. Statistics such as these is why the presumptive Democratic nominee, former Vice President Joe Biden, has made eliminating the death penalty one of the planks in his criminal justice platform. According to his campaign website, quote, because we cannot ensure we get death penalty cases right every time, Biden will work to pass legislation to eliminate the death penalty at the federal level and incentivize states to follow the federal government's example. These individuals should instead serve life sentences without probation or parole, unquote. That's the background. As is usual in death penalty debates, 
both sides rushed to point out that, quote, the Bible is on our side, unquote. Of course, one side has to be wrong, right? Wrong. Both sides are right. One side, however, is more right than the other. Consider this debate of sorts recorded in the Talmud over the death penalty issue. Quote, a Jewish court that executes a person once in seven years is called a murderous court. Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah says, not once in seven years, but once in 70 years. On the other hand, Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva say, had we been members of such a court, no person would ever be put to death, unquote. Given that there are 36 instances in which the Torah mandates capital punishment, and not just for murder, how could these sages say such things? Because while the Torah indeed prescribes the death penalty in those 36 instances, the totality of Torah law turns the possibility on its head of actually imposing the death penalty. Capital punishment is very much a part of Torah law, but that's true on the surface only. As God is quoted as saying in Deuteronomy 19, quote, And your eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, unquote. In Numbers 35, which coincidentally with this week's executions will be read tomorrow as part of this week's Torah portion, God is quoted as saying that a murderer, quote, shall surely be put to death, unquote. God, however, also is quoted as saying this in Exodus 23, quote, do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, unquote. That verse puts a very heavy weight on the shoulders of the judges who must decide on imposing the death penalty on a defendant. I should note, by the way, that not all of those 36 instances calling for capital punishment are left to an earthly court to decide and carry out. Rather, it's death by heaven that's meant in most cases, meaning that human courts have no jurisdiction in those cases. As for the cases in which an earthly court does have jurisdiction, the Torah seemingly has no problem carrying out the death penalty. Seemingly, though, is the operative word. Often what the Torah says and what it means are two different things. Only by understanding the totality of Torah law does one understand a specific commandment. The death penalty is not unique to the Torah. It was the way of the world 3,500 years ago, and still is in many places, including obviously here in the United States. The Torah often doesn't try to overtly overturn commonly accepted practices that might have broad support, unless they involve such issues as blasphemy and heresy. Instead, it permits those practices in theory, but then sets rules that make it virtually impossible to carry out. For example, blood vengeance was accepted in the ancient world, and even today in some places in the modern world. Kill my relative, even by accident, and I get to kill you, and I might even get to kill some of your relatives as well. In law number 210 of the most famous non-Jewish law code in the ancient world, the Code of Hammurabi, it states that if a man strikes a freeborn woman and she dies, the man's daughter is to be put to death. Law number 230 states that if a poorly constructed building collapses, killing the owner's son, the son of the builder shall be put to death. That's an eye for an eye carried to an extreme. But it was too much a part of accepted practice 3,500 years ago for the Torah to challenge directly. The Torah needed to be accepted by the people Moses led out of Egypt, and they weren't likely to accept the law code that flew in the face of accepted practice. The Torah says blood vengeance is perfectly legal, but then it throws something into the mix, something called the city of refuge. It's first mentioned in Exodus chapter 21, and it's elaborated on elsewhere, especially in part of tomorrow's Torah reading. 
Yes, says the Torah in Numbers 35. If a person unintentionally kills someone and, quote, the avenger of blood kills the slayer, he shall not be guilty of having murdered someone, unquote. And that's where the city of refuge comes in. If the unintentional murderer has his wits about him, he won't wait around for the death to be discovered. Instead, he or she will get a head start on the blood avenger by immediately running to one of the conveniently located cities of refuge and following a trial at which his claim to accidental homicide is found credible, he or she will be permanently protected in that city until the high priest dies, at which time he can return home again fully protected. Our sages also set another rule to go with this one. Each community was responsible for maintaining its system of roads so that there won't be any roadway hazards to obstruct a person's rush to a city of refuge. The principle of blood vengeance is preserved in theory. In practice, though, it's made all but impossible to carry out. So it is with the death penalty. It exists in the Torah, in theory. But other laws imposed by the Torah make it all but impossible to carry out. For example, the Torah makes clear that neither circumstantial evidence nor the testimony of only one witness can lead to the death penalty. As Deuteronomy 17 puts it, quote, By the mouth of two eyewitnesses or three eyewitnesses shall he who deserves death be put to death, unquote. Only by the testimony of two or more eyewitnesses can a person be convicted in a death penalty case. Circumstantial evidence can't enter into the decision to convict, and neither can a defendant's confession. The Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution gives a defendant the right to remain silent, but if he or she confesses, that confession may be entered into evidence. The Torah, however, understood that some confessions may be forced, and others simply may be false. Confessions, therefore, are to be ignored. Here is another fact not in dispute. More than a few of the exonerations of death row inmates since 1973 involved false confessions, according to a 2015 report by University of Virginia law professor Brandon Garrett. Quote, death penalty cases often heavily revolve around confession evidence. One half of the 20 cases of individuals exonerated by DNA testing from death row in the U.S. included false confessions. Each of those confessions supposedly included specific details of the crime that only the murderer could have known, unquote. Garrett, by the way, suggested police may have supplied those details to the defendants, which is very likely in those cases. That's why the Torah bans the use of all confessions, period. This isn't rabbinic spin on what the Torah says. This is plain text, unevolved, unspun Torah law. And it clearly, severely limits, if not eliminates entirely, the carrying out of a death sentence. The Torah also sets a guideline to ensure that witnesses understand the serious nature of their testimony. Because the very next verse in Deuteronomy 17 mandates that the witnesses also are to be the executioners. Quote, the hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death. Unquote. It's one thing to testify against someone in a capital case. It's quite another to be the one to execute that person. The Torah also sets rules designed to force witnesses to be very careful not to frame a defendant with perjured testimony. In Deuteronomy 19, it states, quote, If the witness is a false witness and has testified falsely against his fellow, then you shall do to him as he had thought to do to his fellow, unquote. 
Put another way, a person who lies about a defendant in order to convict that person receives the punishment he wanted to see imposed on the defendant. Most often in this country, we lock up perjurers. The Torah wants them punished in a measure-for-measure sort of way. Some states actually have a similar law. In California, for example, if a witness willfully perjures himself in a capital case, leading to the conviction and execution of an innocent person, that witness can receive a death sentence or be sentenced to life imprisonment without the benefit of parole. Another limit that the Torah imposes on the death penalty is this. Even before a witness is allowed to testify to the facts in a case, the judges hearing the case are required to conduct an extensive cross-examination to determine the witness's motivation and possible biases. Judges under Torah law have a very active role to play. They don't get to sit by quietly waiting to rule on motions. We know the Torah takes the judge's role very seriously because of the way it words that role and because it repeats what it says in three different places in Deuteronomy. Here are the three iterations. First, quote, And you thoroughly inquired into the matter and investigated it, and interrogated witnesses. And behold, it was true, what you heard was correct, unquote. A few chapters later, Deuteronomy says much the same thing, quote, And it was told to you, and you heard of it, and you thoroughly inquired into the matter. And behold, it was true, what you heard is correct, unquote. Finally comes this, quote, And the judges shall thoroughly inquire into the matter, unquote. In a sense, these iterations would seem like overkill, as if Moses ran through an ancient version of Roger's thesaurus to show off his vocabulary. That's not how the Torah works, though. If something is repeated three times, it might as well have been engraved in stone. Taken together with all its reiterated synonyms, our sages said, these verses require Israel's judges to be as thorough as humanly possible in investigating every claim, and it especially requires them to subject witnesses to what we would call today a brutal cross-examination. The sages added that the judges in these examinations have to lean toward exonerating the defendant, not promoting the prosecution. Even before they begin to cross-examine a witness, the judges hearing the case are required to warn him or her of the gravity of his or her testimony. Quote, Perhaps you'll say something that's only a supposition, or hearsay, or secondhand, or even something you heard from a trustworthy person. Or perhaps you don't know that we will scrutinize your testimony with examination and inquiry. Know, moreover, that capital cases are not like non-capital cases. In non-capital cases, a perjurer may pay money and so make atonement. But in capital cases, the witness is answerable for the blood of the one who is wrongfully condemned and executed, unquote. Meaning, if you have that person executed, you're the one who's going to be executed. That warning being given, the judges begin by exploring possible biases. Are you related in any way by blood or through marriage? Will you receive any benefit from your testimonies, such as leniency from the prosecutor in this or another matter? Have you yourself ever been convicted of a crime? And so on. Finally, before the witnesses were allowed to testify to the actual facts of the case, says the Talmud, the judges, quote, would examine the witnesses with seven questions. In what week of years did this occur? In what year? In what month? 
On what date of the month? On what day? In what hour? In what place? Moreover, they asked, do you recognize him? And finally, did you warn him? Unquote. Witnesses who were unsure of the answer to any of these simple questions were dismissed as unreliable. If different witnesses answered these questions differently, depending on whether the differences were substantive, such as if one said the crime occurred at 2.45 in the afternoon and the other said it happened near nightfall, the testimony of both are declared inadmissible. Even if multiple witnesses answered the same way and one witness answered differently, the testimony of all the witnesses is inadmissible. The did you warn him question stands above the rest because what's really being asked of the witness is, did you do anything to stop the accused from committing this crime? A no answer to that question is enough to invalidate the testimony of any witness who gives it because by not doing anything to prevent the crime, he or she was at least passively complicit in its commission. In other words, in the words of the sages I quoted earlier, a Jewish court that executes a person despite all the roadblocks the Torah puts up is called a murderous court. Apply these standards to any episode of law and order you may have seen and you'll understand why, taken together, they make it nearly impossible for a prosecutor to put on a convincing case. That's exactly what the Torah wants, and that's exactly why the sages created these rules. Here's how a leading 20th century Orthodox legal expert, the late Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik, summed up Judaism's view of the death penalty in 1994. Quote, The Jewish view of the death penalty is that it should exist, but should never be used, unquote. He added that it shouldn't even be a real option, except in, quote, extraordinary situations in extraordinary threats to the public order, unquote. He said that, and the sages ruled the way they did, because death is final and irreversible, and because God said, quote, do not bring death on those who are innocent and in the right, unquote. Soloveitchik added that a leader who keeps the death penalty on the books or puts it on the books was to be considered, quote, the leader of a bloody government, unquote. The Torah, in simple, unambiguous language, makes it clear that there must be absolute certainty that the defendant committed the crime and that the act was wanton and willful before he or she can be executed. What we know for a certainty is that innocent people can be and have been convicted of a capital crime, and that about one out of every 25 people sentenced to death is likely to have been innocent. Only God knows how many of those who were executed also were innocent. If the Torah requires certainty to a degree that's not always possible, then it's never possible to justify the death penalty by citing the Torah. It's as simple as that. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. And I'd like to hear from you about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.